Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Security Without the State. In many ways, and in many developing countries, the state has failed the poor. And so what they are experiencing is an increased vulnerability to crime, an increased vulnerability to violence, and really no place to go in terms of the state itself to get any kind of redress or protection from these. In many parts of the world, the police are either absent or actively dangerous to the majority of the citizens. Communities have to rely on their own resources to preserve public safety. How the police fail the poor and how communities secure their own order are our subjects tonight on Ideas. The program is part six of a continuing series called In Search of Security by David Cayley. Police forces in Canada are known as police services and with some justification. We expect the police to respond to our calls, to respect our civil rights, and to answer to civilian authority. These expectations are sometimes disappointed, but they are the standard we set. But for most of the world's people, the case is very different. Criminologist Benoit Dupont of the University of Montreal has studied policing in Latin America. Well, here we see the police as the solution to our crime problems. Over there in Latin America, the police is the problem itself and creating probably more problems than it is solving in terms of uh, uh, violence, especially in shanty towns. Rich people don't have any problems and middle classes really don't have any issue with the police in those countries except that the police is so corrupt and so inefficient that they really must resort to private security companies to ensure their safety. But for the poor people living in shanty towns and in some countries like Argentina, we're talking about probably half of the population, the police is part of the problem. Actually, it's creating insecurity for these people. Police killings are very common. Police violence, harassment of young people, taking bribes. The idea of the police doesn't evoke security or protection against crime problems. It evokes torture and uh, actually more problems than if the police wasn't there. So that's why some of these communities are resorting to organized crime to protect them because they have more trust in organized crime and, you know, drug gangs to protect them and to be fair to them than to the police. In Brazil, for example, people in favelas, their protection is ensured by drug gangs and also the drug gangs also provide electricity to people in the favelas because government services cannot do it. So you have organized crime actually being a provider of public services for the people. To give you an idea of how far people have come into being distrustful of the police and other government services. Conditions in Brazil and Argentina are mirrored in many African countries as well. Canadian lawyer Vince Del Buono lives in Nigeria, where he heads an international aid program that is trying to improve security and access to justice for the poor. There, he says, the police have been at the bidding of the military governments that have ruled the country during most of the post-independence period. The police were used by the military to repress the population, but at the same time abused by the military in being starved for resources. 
And so as someone said that uh, upon the transition from the military government to the first civilian government in 19, the first recent civilian government in 1999, the police were in the worst of positions because they had been alienated from the population, but at the same time were not a strong institution because they had been starved themselves for resources, and in many ways absent from significant portions of the country, especially the rural areas. No, no resources. The lack of resources as well means that the police do not have vehicles to attend to. Some of the many telephones and police stations don't work, so it is a very dysfunctional system. On top of that, you have a tradition of, which is not unique to Nigeria, it's a policing tradition that extends to many colonial situations, of a police force which is semi-militarized or militarized, and which is used specifically to quell public disorder. And that's its primary function rather than public service. The consequences of that is that in many cases, uh, and again, Nigeria is not unique by any stretch of the imagination, the police are experienced as brutal, as corrupt, and uh, essentially as repressive, and not people who are working for the interests of the community as such, but for the interests of those who are in power. Police in Nigeria, Vince Del Buono says, have neither the inclination nor the means to protect the citizens. So people fend for themselves. Poor people have a way of providing for their own security in the face of an absent or a predatory state. They organize themselves into community associations, overwhelmingly, almost exclusively male, who are drawn from either youth group or they're drawn from the traditional hunters in the community. In some cases, they are retired army personnel or police personnel. Some have uniforms, for instance. Some are given a small allowance from the local government areas. Some people, there's a, there's a type of a tithe that's taken on the community residents who pay a small fee towards the expenses of the organization. For the most part, most of these people are not salaried. They're volunteers, but they get some, some get some honorary. Lots of variations in all of that. For the most part, with very few exceptions, not armed, not armed with firearms anyway, have sticks and have as well cutting blades of, of various orders, machetes, cutlasses, as they describe them, and for the most part, flashlights. And they patrol the area of the community to ensure that there are no strangers who are coming in to actually commit crimes against people, because armed robberies are a fact of life. Citizen security in Nigeria has many equivalents around the world. In fact, there are now quite a number of citizen patrols in Canada. According to one researcher I spoke to, 20% of Canadian chiefs of police now report that they have citizens patrolling in their jurisdiction. Patrols are usually established in response to some perceived disorder or threat. Gangs, drugs, street prostitution and break-ins are common reasons. In Manitoba, there's a government program called Citizens on Patrol, which provides support for the recruitment, training, and equipping of local patrollers. Political scientist Pamela Leach of the Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg has investigated citizen policing in many parts of the world. She says that in Canada, patrols are registered with the police and cooperate with them. In Winnipeg, one patrol was disbanded by the police for exceeding its authority. 
but in most countries, citizens act independently. One of the groups Pamela Leach studied was a neighborhood association in Kenya in what she describes as a lower-middle-class area of Nairobi. She begins by reading a quotation from her interview with one resident. He says, Whenever we are attacked and we storm out to defend ourselves, what comes to mind is not the human rights of the, person, of the people attacking us. What comes to mind is that we are in danger. That's why we come out with weapons. If you are an intruder, we will beat you up. We will not try to arrest you and take you to the police. If you are arrestable, that's okay, but not until these guys will have really been beaten up. The neighborhood will beat the intruder before they consider calling the police because of the sense of danger. We are feeling these guys have come here to kill us. If you observe the rules, then you will be the one to die. So these people mean business. They also have to be feeling fairly threatened to have set up this kind of uh, mechanism, if you like. And it is quite an organized thing. They have regular meetings. They have dues that people pay. They keep dogs, which help them to do the patrolling. They um, have regular events like a goat roast, um, which brings all the members of the association out to, to eat and be married together. They do mediation of domestic disputes and other kinds of disputes within the community. But their main function is to deal with external threats. The people she interviewed in Nairobi made it clear to Pamela Leach that they feel they have no choice. With the harsh economic conditions of recent years, they say, violent robbery has become rampant and the police no longer come. But citizen justice can get out of hand. It happened in Nigeria's Anhambra state, Vince Del Buono says, with a group called the Bakasi Boys. They started out by being a community protection patrol that was there to protect the markets the market areas from thefts, robberies in, the, in that area. Over the course of three or four years, they became increasingly lawless. That is, that they were no longer accountable and started to administer summary justice themselves, questionable motives as to whose interests they were operating in, whether they'd become renegade in the sense of being controlled by very powerful people against political opponents of those powerful people. And so gradually, over time, was, were seen to have become a law unto themselves no longer accountable to the communities which they were serving, but instead were becoming predatory on those communities. And so there was a great deal of public scrutiny and international scrutiny brought against their conduct, especially the, the way that they were administering summary justice, and both the state and the federal governments took action to disband them. The Bakasi boys' evolution from community protection to summary justice and political thuggery represents an inherent danger of citizen initiatives. Criminologist Clifford Shearing is a native South African who taught for much of his career at the University of Toronto and is now at the Australian National University in Canberra. He has written about how order was maintained in South Africa's black townships during the apartheid period, when the attention of the state police was focused on protecting white enclaves there was the creation of a kind of popular police or people's police and popular courts. Now these drew on a culture of tribal justice and tribal ordering, but emerged very differently. They tended to be controlled by the youth. 
they became kind of a, a program almost of you know of youth governance. Now in South Africa at the time, youth was a very expandable term, included people up well into their thirties, and they created um, people's courts, and these varied a lot, but they were in a number of occasions where people's courts became quite violent. And in a sense, they were clones of South African courts, but without uh, even the sort of uh, limitations which were imposed on by the judiciary in the apartheid courts. So in the sanctions, they were pretty um, extreme at times. There would be floggings, there would be requirements of work to do. So these courts uh, were responded to in a very ambivalent way. On the one hand, people were pleased to see the courts working and to see these various popular institutions working. On the other hand, there became quite a bit of resentment about them within populations because of how they worked. Popular institutions provide an answer, but a problematic answer, to the absence of the state. Whether this absence occurs through indifference, as in apartheid South Africa, or through state failure, as in Kenya and Nigeria. Citizen initiatives do replace or supplement state police, but tend at times to become a parody of what they're replacing with repressive force simply exerted under a different aegis. This is a predicament that is not receiving the consideration it ought to have, in Pamela Leach's view. It remains enclosed, she says, in a cone of silence, a figure she draws from an old television spoof of heroic secret agent stories called Get Smart. When things were getting really tense on the Get Smart show, uh, Maxwell Smart would call for the cone of silence, and in the cone of silence he would try to talk to the chief. And he could never hear anything in the cone of silence, and he was he had great difficulty communicating in the cone of silence, but uh, this was the most secure environment in which to talk. And so I think there's a little bit of a cone of silence around the notion of citizens engaging in security for many reasons. One of them is that it's an implicit, if not explicit, recognition that the police can't cope or are not delivering the level of security that we might wish for. At the same time, there's a reluctance to name that and to recognize that from very many sides. Uh, On the one hand, those who are supportive of the police are reluctant to expose them. On the other hand, those who who are concerned about police societies or police states and the implications of having a securitized society don't want to discuss this too much because it seems to always lead to the conclusion, well, we need more policing, when in fact there are problems with societies that have very high levels of policing. And so um, how do we get around that? So the cone of silence then is over not only patrollers, but over all of us because those who are, who feel that the problems of justice and injustice in our society are better addressed through social justice and through, I guess, through social justice initiatives, also are loath to engage in or even study 
in many cases, the problem of policing and what is a better alternative? What is a more progressive alternative than what is essentially a coercive force within society? What would be a more progressive force? And we haven't had enough discussion about this. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight, we're looking at how citizens secure order in the absence of police. The program is part of a continuing series by David Cayley called In Search of Security. Pamela Leach's studies of citizen security indicate a persistent problem which she thinks no one really wants to face. On the one hand, communal security arrangements can easily run amok in the absence of a clear rule of law. On the other, a state police numerous enough to address the acute security issues faced by many poor communities might be even worse and is not currently affordable or available in any case. The way out of this dilemma would seem to lie in a better balance and a better fit between state and community since neither can solve the problem alone. So I want to devote the balance of tonight's program to one promising experiment that is seeking this balance. The place is South Africa, where a new institution called a Peace Committee now handles local security issues in a number of communities. Peace Committees are communal institutions which draw on the knowledge and abilities of local people, but they receive state support they're connected to the police, and they're governed by a written constitution called the Code of Good Practice. In other words, they straddle the divide between law and custom, state and community, professional and volunteer. How they came to be involves a bit of a story. It begins with Clifford Shearing, a native South African who taught for many years at the University of Toronto's Center of Criminology. The time was 1993, during the run-up to South Africa's first free post-apartheid elections. I was in South Africa, and I was on a panel that was asked the question, how do we provide for the peaceful policing of demonstrations during the elections? The assumption in our mandate was that we would come up with a training package or something to retrain what was then called the riot squad of the South African police to police differently. And there was about a 10 months horizon. Didn't take us as a panel long to figure out that you're not going to retrain a force of people who have been doing this for 30 years in 10 months to act in very different ways. The alternative in Clifford Shearing's view, was to limit the role of the police and encourage demonstrators, as much as possible, to police themselves. So he set out on a journey to investigate crowd control. One of the people he talked to was the Dutch police officer in charge of security at football matches. He confirmed Clifford Shearing's sense that successful policing always builds on the self-control of those being policed. I remember the chief there said, do you know, Clifford, 
These fans are brilliantly organized. If there's a match in Stockholm, they will have jumbo jets organized to go there, accommodation, everything. If they decide to disrupt an event, we are puny in comparison. They are very organized, a lot of capacity. Unless they commit themselves, we are going to be in trouble. Then I went to Rotterdam and I was taken up to the top of the football stadium, to the control booth. And the control booth had three chairs in it. So I asked, who sits in these three chairs? And I said, well, this chair is for the head of the fans. This chair is the manager of the stadium. And this chair is for the police officer in charge of mass events and we collectively manage what happens because we all have knowledge and capacity which is useful. So I came back to South Africa and asked the panel a rhetorical question, well, who has the most knowledge about policing demonstrations? didn't take us long to say demonstrators, obviously. They know how to demonstrate. They know how to do things. So our question became, how do we mobilize the knowledge and capacity of demonstrators to ensure that demonstrations are peaceful and well-ordered. And we worked out a pretty simple schema that said, anyone has a right to demonstrate, but before you do, you should be able to present your plan for ensuring that your demonstration will be peaceful. And there'll be a, people who will review this plan with you and develop it. So in the course of building this, we also train marshals from across the country and sharing knowledge of various political organizations about demonstrations. And the elections took place with very little involvement of the police because there were always plans of action by demonstrators to make sure things were peaceful. At the end of all of this, the new Minister of Justice, who I'd been working with, said essentially, Clifford, can't we do this more generally? Can't we find ways of mobilizing community knowledge and capacity? If what you've said is true, that demonstrators know the most, all there is to know about demonstrations, or a lot that there is to know, surely community people know what to do about insecurity in their communities. How can we mobilize that? So we agreed to develop a pilot and to try and build a model that would develop appropriate locally based institutions that would mobilize local capacity and knowledge that would govern security. Not do everything, but do what local capacity and knowledge can do. Clifford Shearing and his colleagues set up their pilot project in a poor community called Zuelatemba, about 90 kilometers from Cape Town. For two years, they worked with the local residents, defining and developing an approach to security that they named peacebuilding. It was based on the idea that if local conflicts are promptly resolved, they will not fester and grow into bigger problems. We have a wonderful story we tell. 
the real incident, someone burned down someone else's shack. So we went and we asked them, why did you burn down that other person's shack? And they said, well, they've been assaulting me. We went to the other person and we said, why have you hit him? Well, because he spent the last three months insulting me every time I walked past. He says something nasty about me. So we went back to the other person and said, why have you spent the last three months insulting this other person? He said, it's his chickens. They mess up all over my yard. So we realized a couple of important things. One is often big problems are just chicken shit problems. <laughs> And that if you can deal with the small problems, they will often not escalate. We also realize that thinking about victims and offenders is usually quite foolish. Because the person who is a victim today was probably the offender yesterday and will probably be an offender tomorrow. They're usually ongoing conflicts. So we began to organize a process for responding to ongoing conflicts. And our question was always, how do we reduce the likelihood of this happening again? And the question is, who knows most about that? Not necessarily the people in conflict, but their neighbors, their parents, their school teachers, and other people in the community. And we found if you brought them together in a compatible environment, they would very often come up with very good ideas about how to reduce this happening again. And you could routinize that. And when they came up with ideas, they very often inspired people who are at the meeting to say, no, I'll commit myself to that. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do the other. We also found that when people had seen disputes happening again and again and again, they got a very good understanding of what the generic problems in the community were. And they could come up with ideas for how to respond more generically to problems. There was one case, if you like, or one event that really illustrated this quite nicely. They'd been seeing that there were a lot of people taking things from other people's houses. They began to say, well, why do we have this business of people taking things from other people's houses? Well, we all buy stolen goods. We create a market for burglars. So we should begin to doing something about buying stolen goods. And they began to think, well, why do we buy stolen goods? Because we want them more cheaply. So we need collective ways of buying and things like that. So we began to build a model. They called the basic element of this model a peace committee, and there are now some 19 of them operating in South Africa. The idea has also spread to Latin America, where a pilot program has been established in the city of Rosario in Argentina. Peace committees address whatever problems are reported to them at an open gathering involving everyone concerned in that problem, and then they recommend a solution. Their work is supervised by a body known as the Community Peace Program, 
which works with the local committees, monitoring, studying, and refining their procedures. The peace program, for example, conducts exit interviews with the participants in the peace gatherings. Madeline Jenniker has been involved in the peace program from its early days, and she says that one of its great strengths is the timely way in which peace committees can respond to community problems. The average time that elapses, I mean, the 2,400 peacemaking gatherings that have happened to date, the average time that elapses from the report date to the gathering date is four days. So that is a remarkable turnaround compared to, and if you take, for example, I'd like to bring gender into this, because 60% of the facilitators of the peacemaking gatherings are in fact female. 58% of community participants are female. If you took a child maintenance issue to court in South Africa, you'd be lucky if it took you two years. If the issue was brought to the peace committee, it could be addressed in four days. And obviously there's just the issue of satisfaction and the exit interviews have proved this, that 97% of respondents to the exit interviews say that if at all they had another conflict or dispute that they wanted to have addressed, they'd bring it to the Peace Committee because they have full faith in the fact that the community is capable of solving their own problems. And the Peace Committee handling these matters has definitely improved it. Community satisfaction is something in which the members of Peace Committees have a very definite interest because they are paid according to the work they do and the outcomes they produce. And this is a crucial point in Madeleine Jenniker's view. Quite often in developing countries, consultants and professionals are paid for the work that they do. And poor people are expected to volunteer and do work for nothing, engage all their energies in contributing to the well-being of their communities. But ultimately, the value of their contribution doesn't put bread on the table. And we see this program ultimately at addressing that aspect because there would be no sustainable way that communities can engage in their own, the provision of their own security without being remunerated in a way that recognizes their contribution and attaches a value to their contribution. Payments to peace committees are drawn from what is called a peace-building fund, originally established with international aid, but now largely secured through municipal tax monies. Money is paid not just to individual members of peace committees, but also into a community fund. Benoit Dupont of the University of Montreal has been involved with the community peace program that is now developing in the city of Rosario in Argentina. Some of the money goes into their own pockets and some of the money goes into a community um, self-directed investment fund. And therefore, a few times every year, they can also hold what we call a um, peace-building gathering, where people basically try to ad identify problems more general problems than the conflicts they've been solving during the year that could participate into making this, the, the community a bit more 
peaceful and a bit more easy to live in. And um, they can use this self-directed investment fund to actually implement the ideas they've had about trying to improve their community. And for example, in Argentina, some of the communities have used this money to provide a glass of milk every day to kids going to school because this has been identified as one being one of the needs of the community. Other resources have been used to create a program to identify cases of malnutrition. And this might seem a long way from providing security to community, but of course we are trying to approach the idea of security not only from the coercive way, but also from a more general way and based on the assumption that if we create the right conditions for security to emerge, then we can decrease the uh, level of force uh, we need to maintain security and we can rely a lot more on the people to establish themselves some of the mechanisms by which security will be maintained in a community. The Community Peace Program in Argentina follows the same procedures as in South Africa, except that the peace committees have been renamed Foros de Convivencia. In both places, what goes on is governed by what is called the Code of Good Practice. John Cartwright is a former professor of English and medieval studies, for a time in Toronto, who is now the communications coordinator of the Community Peace Program in his native South Africa. There are very practical aspects to the Code of Good Practice, such as we don't use force at any time, we don't gossip, we don't take sides, we act as a team, not as individuals. So these are all very practical guidelines for how you go about this relationship with the community, if you like. And the articulation of the Code of Good Practice was a fairly simple matter of the Community Peace Programme assisting in putting it into words with the approval of the originating Peace Committee. And it has since been presented to every new Peace Committee, and they have all agreed that this is appropriate. And in fact, part of the process in what we call peace gatherings is that the meeting may start with a prayer, it may start in any kind of informal way in which people feel comfortable, but then the first, as it were, formal act that has to happen is that the Code of Good Practice is read out so that everybody there, not only does it remind the Peace Committee what their role is and what their role is not, their role is not to impose, to threaten, to judge, to intimidate, or any of those things, but to facilitate and to draw out from people, some of whom may be apprehensive, some of whom may be angry, to provide them with an environment in which they and the people who have come feel comfortable enough to come out with what they really feel about what has happened, to say what happened and what its implications have been from for them so that they can move on from then. And it also provides the, the people who come also with a framework so that there is no expectation that any kind of punishment will come from this. So speaking out may be embarrassing sometimes, it may be difficult, but you can do it in the knowledge that this is not going to bring some kind of a gang of vigilantes on your back, not at all. It's in order to understand what happened so that you can move on from it. And the desire to move on into a better, 
more secure in the broadest sense, humanly secure environment is what seems to bring people to peace committees. Peace committees, John Cartwright stresses, are an institution of security in the broad sense, rather than of justice. They may sometimes recommend restitution, but they do not see their job as punishment or even denunciation. Their orientation is pragmatic, to solve problems with a view to preventing any repetition of the harm. In one case, Madeline Jenniker described to me, an ugly assault in a bar in which a girl was disfigured with a broken bottle, the Peace Committee's solution did not focus so much on a remedy for the injured girl as on ways of keeping young girls out of bars. But though Peace Committees make no claim that they are doing justice, Madeline Jenniker admits that they do sometimes have to face some of the same questions that come up in justice settings such as whether all parties are in a position to speak freely. You'll hear first from Madeleine Jenniker, then John Cartwright joins in. In the pilot community, the majority of the Peace Committee members are closer speaking. And the closer tradition is that you don't disagree with your partner or spouse if you're a woman. This was recognized by the Peace Committee, and they decided that the process should include the opportunity for disputants to actually give their side of the or report on their story separately so that the first disputant would give their account of what happened and how they perceived the conflict while the other disputant actually waits outside. And then the second disputant or third disputant would be given the opportunity and thereafter the peace committee would actually read aloud the report of each of the disputants, and they'd have the opportunity to confirm what they've said or modify what they've said. But the point would be that in some way it gives the opportunity for the individual disputants not to be intimidated by the presence of the other disputants. I think it's also very important that there be other people at the peace gathering people who have been either brought by the disputants or have been invited by the Peace Committee because they identify them for the particular purposes of this dispute, this problem, as people who could make a positive contribution. I remember in one of the Peace Committees we were working with, when they were reminded that they really need not just to have the disputants there, I remember one of them saying, oh, of course, that's why we're having such difficulty, because we've just been asking the people in the dispute. Ah, thanks for the reminder. Because they were finding, as you would expect, that if you just have the people with the dispute, they're already locked into a certain attitude in relation to each other. But if you bring other people in there who may be sympathetic or rather understanding, and they can use that understanding to say to them, hey, what you're saying there isn't actually the way it is. Remember there was one peace gathering where what was brought to the peace committee was that this young man had been beating up his girlfriend. And 
she brought along her sister. And they went through this, and the young man said, yes, yes, he really recognised that he had done this, and he was very sorry, he apologised, and he, he, he really wanted to say he would not do it again. And the facilitator in the Peace Committee asked the young woman, are you satisfied with that? And she said, yes, I think so. And her sister chipped in and said, uh-uh, no way. He's done this before, and he's apologised before. And that put the young man into an extremely embarrassed position in which his kind of way of kind of smoothing his way through it had been seen through. Exposing convenient lies or breaking deadlocks or circumventing the expectation that wives will be subservient to husbands. These are all in some way examples of how peace committees challenge the status quo and galvanize change in their communities. And this is one important way in which the peace program differs from citizen security initiatives that are just a reflexive response to threats. Another crucial difference, as I mentioned earlier, lies in the way peace committees harmonize the spheres of state and community without obliterating the difference. On the one hand, they are autonomous community institutions. On the other, they operate within a clear legal and constitutional framework. An example of how peace committees have kept their independence while remaining integrated with the South African state is the way in which they have developed their relations with the police. Here's Clifford Shearing. We always realize it would be important to articulate the work of peace committees with the work of the police, but we were reluctant to do that until the peace committees had developed some autonomy, had developed a culture, had developed institutions, had developed their own resource base before we engaged with the police. And the reason was that very often when police engage with community organizations, they do so in order to get their agendas implemented. So they see community organizations as uh, resources available to them to implement their agendas. And we were anxious to avoid that. We wanted, if we did start to work with the police, something of an equal partnership or an equal partnership so that there could be proper negotiations and that a program could emerge that was directed by the peace committees and the police and that used both of their sets of resources. So in the past when we'd been approached by the police to whether they could help, we tended to say, no, there isn't anything we'd like to do together at the moment, but we'd like to keep you informed of what we're doing. And then at one point, about 18 months to two years ago now, the police commissioner in the Bulant, who we had kept informed and had been speaking to, came to us in the peace committees and said, we've been having to close down local police stations, the small local ones, because we don't have the resources to provide the staff. And now we're finding a lot of community concern about this, and they are mobilizing their politicians who are now coming to talk to us and 
And the message we're getting is, you have these buildings there, you have these stations there, why don't you open them up again? Because we want to have local police as opposed to having to go to a regional station. So we discussed this, and the Peace Committee's response was, no, we can't help you. The police, at this point, were essentially trying to hive some of their work off onto the Peace Committees, thus enabling them to reopen local stations and reduce the political heat. The Peace Committees weren't interested, but they did make a counterproposal. Reopen the local stations as community peace centers and develop a truly cooperative relationship. The police agreed to try it. We began to say, well, the thing that peace committees can't do and refuse to do because of our principles and the culture is apply physical force in the case of emergencies. And we can't deal with emergencies particularly well. So we always have to let them go, and this is a problem for us. And the police, we always tell people to go to the police, but the police aren't available. So we've developed a schema whereby the police train reservists who provide people 24 hours a day if anyone wants to come in. And when someone comes in with a problem, if it's an emergency, it is directed to the police assigned to the community peace center or the regional police station. And all other problems are dealt with by the peace committee. And normally when the police have dealt with an emergency, they would pass the problem on to the peace committee. So we worked in one community, Ungobelo, for about a year now, and we've now worked out procedures for doing this. And it's working particularly well. Also as part of um, our discussions with the police and regular meetings, we told the police that we have exit interview information and we have survey information on the community about how they're responding to peace committees and We talk to people who have been to gatherings and tell us about how they were treated and so on. And we have reports on everything and we go through these reports and we review them. And the police response was, oh, we'd like to have a look at that too in order to keep tabs on what you are doing. And the peace committee's response was, that would be fine so long as you submit yourself to the same kind of engagement, the same kind of processes. So we'd like to do surveys on how the community is responding to you, have exit interviews with people who you've dealt with in emergencies, and have reports which are reviewable on your activities. So the police were a bit surprised about this, but agreed. So now we've built a kind of combined accountability system What Clifford Shearing has said here may astonish those with experience of so-called partnerships with the police. And for reasons he himself gave earlier, police almost by definition are in charge of any situation in which they become involved, which has made them generally better at co-opting other organizations than at cooperating with them. But in this case, Clifford Shearing says, there are reasons why the police have changed their tune. 
there are two reasons. There's a, a structural reason, which is, of course, that they're unable to meet the demand, and we've always regarded ourselves as a, a kind of demand reduction activity from the point of view of the police. I think, too, in this particular area, we built up a lot of confidence with the police because of the openness we've always had with the police as to what we were doing. And I think it's probably a particular people who are managing this particular district at the moment are willing to engage in something like this. So our idea with the police at the moment is that uh, we will now begin to roll this out across the district. We've identified over 60 places where we could do this. So if this works, this would be a major way of engaging the police and of actually creating new policing institutions and new policing practices. Community peace centers are based on the idea that police and peace committees each have a distinct and complementary sphere of operations. Police are necessary in situations of acute insecurity, but have no capacity to generate security in a broader, more positive sense. For that, people have to be able to exert their intelligence, their abilities, and their experience on their own behalf. And what the South African Peace Program has shown, John Cartwright says, is what surprising resources communities possess. He and then Madeleine Jenniker take us to the end of tonight's program. Very often, people don't know how much they know. People living in ordinary communities who give their problems away to police or lawyers, if they can afford it, etc., who, who have the luxury of being able to give their problems away, they're actually doing themselves an injustice by not recognizing the depth of their own knowledge and experience of their own lives. And what the Peace Committee process does is to provide in a tactful and respectful way the opportunity for people who have been hurt or have hurt and people around them who have felt some of these reverberations to think through what it has been and what it might be and to bring an end to the endless ping-pong of you do this to me, I do this to you, the justice system does this to me, I put you in jail, etc., etc., etc. And to say, okay, this has happened, let's be realistic about it, let's accept this, and let's think through ways of moving ahead and see to it that it, it's less likely to happen again. So it doesn't go out into this public arena of, of rhetoric and blaming, etc. It's the togetherness in working for a better future that actually makes this model so powerful and that actually releases that energy that has been wasted on engaging in a conflict, it releases that energy so that it can be used to the advantage of the community. The point would be that the ping-pong that John was referring to many a times keeps us engaged in this whole victim or a racket that we play. And I suppose it serves to be 
reinforcing all the time so that it never actually gets beyond being this little personal thing in my personal space. I never really become a true citizen and contribute to my community at large. The point is, if we are able to put that behind us, we can actually contribute towards being a citizen and building the community. Yeah, I think Mari is absolutely right. I think the the workings of a peace committee are like a microcosm, focusing on one individual thing that has happened that has been disruptive and turning it around through the process within that, that peace gathering to a plan of action that will take it forward. There is, in a sense, something slightly utopian about all this, but it seems to me... If we don't have utopian ideas, we might as well just go back to sleep. And what I find so striking about being engaged in this process is the way it combines a certain kind of idealism with absolute pragmatic practicality. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 6 of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues next Wednesday with a program called The Shadow of Security. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was editorial consultant, Liz Nagy the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows in the Arts Today and Between the Covers. <laughs>